Hello and welcome to Frankly Speaking, where we dive deep into regional headlines and speak with leading policymakers and business leaders. I am Katie Jensen. It has been another dire week of death and destruction in Gaza as Israel's bombardment continues. With more than a month of no fuel allowed to enter the Gaza Strip, UN agencies have warned they will be forced to close imminently shutting down shop for the first time in 75 years, uh, leaving hundreds of thousands homeless without access to food, water or shelter. It comes in a week where Israel launched a strike on Gaza's largest hospital, reportedly raiding emergency rooms and the maternity ward, housing dozens of premature infants. On this episode of Frankly Speaking, we hear from Juliet Tuma, the Director of Communications at the UNRWA to ask about the impact of the fuel blockade on their operations, whether Israel has any justification for targeting a civilian hospital, and how aid agencies are grappling with the staggering loss of 102 colleagues and what has become their deadliest conflict to date. Ms. Tuma, thank you for joining us today on Frankly Speaking. Now, earlier this week, the UNRWA uh, announced that it would be forced to stop its life-saving work at Gaza because it no longer has access to fuel. Now, this means for the first time in 75 years, the UNRWA, which of course is the largest aid agency operating out of Gaza, is no longer able to cater to the 780,000 Palestinians that you've currently been offering shelter to. Frank speaking, how many lives are likely to be lost if Israel continues to use fuel as a weapon of war? Thanks uh, so much and great to be with you. Look, uh, yesterday we got uh, a small, small shipment of fuel, less than uh, half a truck of fuel that we are going to be using um, only for the pickup of supplies that have been coming through Rafah, through the borders with Egypt. Um, the Israeli authorities have conditioned this teeny tiny delivery of fuel only to that. So UNRWA cannot use that fuel for other um, activities, including, for example, the water stations, including um, our fleet of cars, the medical facilities and others. Uh, and we continue to hope that our calls that we've been using for the past few weeks, that they will eventually be heeded and that we will get the supply of fuel that we urgently, urgently need. Because if we don't, we're going to have to take some very tough decisions here. It sounds like operations have been drastically scaled back. We do understand Israel had permitted for 24,000 litres of diesel fuel uh, on one aid truck to be allowed to cross into Egypt, uh, into Gaza on Wednesday. As you mentioned, the restrictions there is not allowed to be used at hospitals, specifically uh, for UN aid trucks. Does that severely limit your capacity to operate out of Gaza? How much are you being forced to scale your operations back by? Yes, it, uh, it's uh, been used as a weapon of war, fuel. 
uh, just like food and water have been used as weapons of war. And this is unacceptable. It's unacceptable for a UN agency the size of ours or any humanitarian agency to be begging for fuel. This is unacceptable, in fact, unbelievable, because we need fuel for humanitarian purposes and we've not had fuel for the past five weeks. What happened uh, recently with this very teeny tiny shipment of fuel it will only allow us to bring in the supplies. And then what do we do? We just sit there and look at the supplies. We need to distribute them. And for that, we need fuel and we need it urgently, not only for UNRWA, but for other humanitarian organizations working on the ground in Gaza. If not, then people will die. Um, of course, we are seeing that happen. I understand that Palestinian telecommunications company Paltel has said in recent days it will also be forced to stop operations. That means potentially a huge communications blackout once again across Gaza, leaving people without internet, without phone access as well. How deadly could those consequences be for the millions of people who are trapped in Gaza? Look, the issue of telecommunications is extremely severe. Just be before I came online to, to speak to you, um, there, I just saw a message that there's, there looks like is another total blackout in, in the Gaza Strip. This would be the fourth time that this happened since the war began. And when this happens, it means several things. It means that we lose contact with our colleagues on the ground. People inside Gaza lose contact with each other. They will not know who's alive and who's dead. They will not be able to call ambulances. Well, the ambulances cannot reach them because there is no fuel. And they feel further and further isolated and abandoned and cut off from each other and from the rest of the world. In a war zone, imagine this is happening. Imagine. And of course, recently we saw the White House come out. They proudly announced they had helped negotiate a daily four-hour pause in the fighting. One of the big reasons behind that was allegedly to let this urgent humanitarian aid in. But would you say that that is uh, essentially pointless if you don't have the fuel to be able to meet these aid trucks? And how many millions of dollars worth of aid is likely to go to waste if this fuel blockade continues? What is really, really, really needed right now is a ceasefire for the sake of civilians, wherever they are. There's been so much suffering, so much loss, so much grief, so much pain. It's been five weeks of hell for people in Gaza. It's time for a ceasefire. It's time for the siege to be lifted. It's time for supplies to go in on a regular basis to flow. It's time, it's, it's overdue. For the sake of our humanity and whatever is left of our humanity, there has to be a ceasefire. There has to be. And so far, those calls have fallen on deaf ears. We saw another horrific event take place this week. On Wednesday, the IDF conducted a strike against Gaza's largest hospital, Al-Shifa Hospital. Now, uh, the Director General of Hospitals in Gaza told Al Jazeera that Israeli forces had uh, stormed the hospital grounds. Uh, it is being reported that they stormed emergency, surgical and maternity wards. They reportedly blew up a warehouse full of medicines and medical supplies as well and we understand they also took 30 people aside blindfolded them stripped them naked and have been interrogating them now the who says it has lost contact with these medics what can you tell us about this operation what are you hearing from colleagues on the ground there 
So Shifa is the largest hospital in Gaza and one of the largest and oldest Palestinian hospitals. Uh, in fact, it was established in 1946 and for many, many years it was catering to civilians uh, inside the, the Gaza Strip. And in Shifa, since the war began, in addition to it being a hospital, it was uh, also being used as a shelter for tens of thousands of people who have come uh, to search safety uh, and protection in the courtyards and the parking lots of the hospital. We've not been able to reach Shifa uh, for quite a long time. We only had a breakthrough a couple of weeks ago with the World Health Organization where we finally were allowed to get to Shifa Hospital and deliver much needed medical supplies and emergency medicines. But that was it. In more than one month, this is the, what we were allowed to do. Medical facilities, hospitals included, are protected by international law, and they should be protected at all times, including during conflict. So only one breakthrough in five weeks so far. Now, uh, Israel and the U.S. has come out. They've accused Hamas of using al-Shifa as a base. This is something that Hamas has, uh, has denied. And it's important to note it is officially classified as a civilian facility. You mentioned there that 2,000 people are sheltering. We understand that no one, patients, are uh, people who are sheltering, as well as doctors, we understand none of them have been allowed to leave. To the best of your knowledge, or colleagues or associates working there, have you ever seen any evidence that Hamas is using this base, uh, is using this hospital as a base? I really cannot uh, comment on this because I do not have the information and I or the organization that I work for, we are not military experts. Okay, well, let's move on. Let's talk a little bit about some of the numbers because the death toll continues to rise. The numbers are horrific. More than 11,500 Palestinians have lost their lives. Around two-thirds of them are women and children. Another 29,000 have been injured. And, of course, it's also been the deadliest conflict in history for the United Nations. I'm very sorry to report that you have lost 102 of your colleagues. And when we talk about aid workers in Gaza, we're often talking about local school teachers, uh, doctors, hospital workers, engineers, people who are taking flour to and from bakeries in order to sustain the local community. Many of these aid workers, we understand, uh, perish alongside their families. Tell me, what will the agency be like now these people have gone? Yes, uh, sadly, 103 of uh, our colleagues uh, have been killed uh, so far. And um, the, the, these updates are the most horrific updates that I get every single day. When that list comes in, it's uh, my heart starts pounding, really, because it's the most dreadful news to know that yet another colleague was killed under um, really, really horrific circumstances. Like you said, many of those uh, colleagues of ours were killed um, with with their with their families. Um, we have whole families being wiped out uh, in different parts of the Gaza Strip since this started. So it is um, really horrific. The agency UNRWA will never be the same without these colleagues. This is uh, a huge, huge loss for the United Nations. Um, all the offices around the world just this week, they've lowered the UN flag um, to half-mast um, in recognition and in memory to these, um, these colleagues. Nothing will bring back these colleagues, but at least we will continue to remember them. And um, in Gaza, 
we decided also in tribute to these um, very same colleagues to keep the flag at full mast for a very simple reason is uh, our dedication to the communities who came to take shelter and protection under the very same UN flag and it's an honor to them and it's a show of commitment that UNRWA is there to help to the degree possible knowing how many challenges we are facing day in day out and we're not able to do the very minimum we're supposed to do for the people who came to seek shelter with us. And of course, I think it goes without saying that our heartfelt, heartfelt condolences are with you and all of your colleagues and all of their families as well in such devastating circumstances. Now, Israel, of course, had come out and urged people to be able to evacuate from North Gaza. They told them to take shelter in the south. But I understand that around two thirds of your colleagues, when, when they were tragically killed, they were not in North Gaza. They were in either middle or south Gaza. So I have to ask, is nowhere safe in Gaza? right now nowhere is safe nowhere is safe in gaza not the north not the middle areas not the southern areas there's this myth going around that the south is safer that's not true like you said one third of our colleagues who were killed they were killed in the middle areas and in the southern areas of the facilities the under facilities that were impacted and damaged during the war more than 70%, they were not in the north, they were in the south, they were in the middle areas. Just recently, we had our guest house, the UNRWA guest house, where our staff sleep. Um, it was hit three times by uh, Israeli Navy uh, uh, bombardment. So, and this was in the south, it was in, in Rafah. So nowhere is safe and no place has been spared, not even UN facilities, not even hospitals. Wow, so UN agencies being hit, schools and hospitals as well. And uh, of course, we know one and a half million people have now been displaced. It has been raining in recent days as well. Tell me, what is life like every day on the streets of Gaza today? Tell us a little bit about what you and your colleagues are seeing. I mean, I speak to colleagues when I can and when the telecommunications permits. And, and first of all, what is really key for all of us to remember is how shocked everyone is. People inside Gaza, those of us outside Gaza, those of us who know Gaza, it's we are shell-shocked at what's happening, at the volume, at the speed, at the level of destruction. It's beyond belief and it's unprecedented. And the exodus that we have seen over the past few days, this river of people, people moving from the north of Gaza, including Gaza City, towards other areas, the middle and the south, this exodus for many, many people meant either reliving the trauma of 1948 or living through the traumas and the and the um, and the war of 1948 that their parents, their, their ancestors lived, lived through. And then there is a third group, which is the survivors of 1948, those Gazans who never were forced to leave, even in 1948, who were now becoming displaced and were forced to leave their homes. So trauma and shock and the reliving of, of trauma is something that we sometimes undermine, we don't often report about, but this is something that will accompany people for years to come and to relive traumas is, is something that is extremely, extremely difficult. And this happened to the people of Gaza.
Certainly horrific circumstances that, that people are dealing with every day in Gaza. Now, uh, you have been in Riyadh this week for an emergency meeting at the Arab League where the UNRWA Commissioner General Philippe Lazzarini spoke. Now, in a very powerful speech, he talked about the school that he had visited in Gaza. He said that while it was once where children used to learn and, and laugh, it is now an overcrowded shelter that lacks the minimum standards for a dignified life. At the same meeting, he also urged the Arab League to push for a humanitarian ceasefire, stating that he was sure that many of them can influence action on the ground. But I have to ask, is it up to Arab governments to show Israel its mistakes? And frankly, is Israel willing to listen? Look, um, we need to knock on every door and leave no stone unturned and continue with the advocacy, continue with the efforts so that we are reaching a ceasefire. This is what is very much needed at the moment. So all efforts need to be exerted to reach that. It is time for a ceasefire in Gaza. And those repeated calls for a ceasefire have repeatedly fallen on deaf ears. And it's a message Mr. Lazzarini has been talking about for some time. He also spoke at the International Conference in Paris, where he warned of the dangers of double standards and the ongoing campaign aimed at dehumanising Palestinians. Likewise, you told the BBC recently, similar to what you've said today, that history is repeating itself with foreign displacement and collective punishment for the Palestinians. Now, you have worked for the United Nations for two decades. For more than a decade, you've been specifically focusing on the Middle East. Do you think Israel is ready to listen now if historically that has not been the case? We are going to continue to put pressure so that we reach a ceasefire in Gaza. Well, finally, before we go, how do you see this conflict ending? We featured UK-based Israeli historian and political scientist Dr. Aaron Gregman in Arab News this week. Now, he said he believes the current phase of the conflict will end in a few days or weeks because the Americans will stop the Israelis. Do you think that's accurate based on what you have seen firsthand in Gaza? Uh, it has to come to an end. The level of destruction and the volume of destruction is just huge. It is time to come for an end. It is time for this war to come to an end. Well, let's hope those calls for a humanitarian ceasefire are granted before many more lives are lost. Ms. Tuma, thank you very much for joining us today. We appreciate your time and your insights on Frankly Speaking today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks.